Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Dan Fletcher, the Chief Financial Officer at Planful. Today, we'll be covering three main topics with Dan. First, charting the path to financial success in an uncertain economy. Second, gaining operational efficiency in a finance organization. And third, technology's role in the modern CFO's toolkit. Dan, please take a moment to give a brief overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Well, hello, Ray, and thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I'll keep it brief on sort of who I am. So as Ray said, I'm CFO of Planful, which is the leading planning and forecasting and reporting provider out there on the market, which I'm sure we'll get into. It's very topical to your podcast in many ways, Ray. Many of our customers are SaaS businesses. As far as my journey, I started my career if that's how far back you want to go as a CPA, as an auditor, shifted after a couple of years into investing, spent about five years in investing before finding my permanent home as an operator. And I was first sort of a hired gun, interim VP finance, interim director of, of FP&A, et cetera, before landing with Planful in late 2019 in my first CFO role. And it's been a wonderful journey with Planful ever since. Daniel, if I'm not mistaken, you lived in Chicago for quite a while. Are you still in Chicago or are you on the West Coast now? I live on the West Coast now. Hard to avoid if you're deep in tech, but, you know, I still root for all the Chicago sports teams, Ray. I couldn't yeah. betray them. The reason I ask, you know, 30 years in San Francisco, my kids all grew up and now my daughter's living in Lincoln Park. And she's like, Dad, I think I like Chicago. I'm going to stay here for a while. <laughs> let's check in with her in the winter. You know, let's check in now. But no, truly, it's a great city. Lincoln Park is one of the best spots. I lived there myself for a number of years. And as they say with Chicago, beautiful city, but maybe find an excuse to go vacation somewhere warm between January and April. I got you. I'm in New York right now, but I won't talk about that. So planful. Well, let's talk about planning because uncertainty was the major factor as companies were planning for 2023, whether they call it FY23 or FY24, if they start in February. So I think a lot of CFOs got that board-approved plan, and they're like, holy shoot, I wonder what's going to happen here in Q1. I'm not too optimistic. <laughs> so what is your advice to our first-time CFOs out there? Because we have a lot of them listening. If you're still uncertain about their board-approved plan, how do you start building contingencies before the first quarter is over? So for the first time, CFOs, you know, I feel your pain because whether you started in, in 2020 or 2019 or you're starting now, what a ride we've been on with the pandemic and now and then with 2021 being a boom year and, and now some uh, mixed signals in the market. You said uncertainty. I think that's the exact word I would use, Ray. So my heart goes out to you all, but really it goes out to all CFOs trying to plan into a completely unpredictable cycle here. And so, you know, I can walk through my strategies and, and certainly as a planning provider, a provider of planning software, we do from time to time get this question, you know, what are you seeing in your customer base? What are the, the best practices? And I would really bucket it down into sort of four primary 
pillars of how to plan really ever, but in uncertainty. The first thing, and you'll hear me say the two words, hyper-realistic a lot in this discussion, Ray, because I think this is the year to be hyper-realistic about a number of things. First of all, let's talk top line. You need to be hyper-realistic when you're formulating that top line. And by that, I mean, test all of your preconceived notions. One of the primary methods of forecasting a top line is to look at the drivers last year, the drivers throughout your go-to-market, things like pipeline creation and conversion, and, and then roll those forward, or maybe even take them up a little bit if you're feeling like your team has um, less execution risk or is more experienced. And I think this is the year, certainly be informed by recent history, but really be honest about the cycle you're in. I mean, the name of the game this year is uncertainty, and that, that extends to buyers. People read the headlines about all the tech layoffs, and everybody's in a wait and see posture. You know, projects, maybe we should wait until 2024 before we tackle tech projects. And so it's really about testing all your preconceived notions on those go-to-market drivers and how they'll behave in this cycle. And I'd get back to that's because this cycle is probably going to be defined by longer sales cycles, higher buyer hesitation, and just sort of more uncertainty. Nobody knows what to expect with all these mixed signals. We're adding jobs, we're experiencing layoffs. The Fed's raising rates, but more slowly than before. That kind of thing just creates a lot of uh, uncertainty in all of us. And a lot of those leading signals, number one, your ability to create pipeline. It's getting harder to create pipeline from all the research I've been doing. Number two, you're seeing an elongated sell cycle, right? Even more so in Q1 than I saw in Q4. And you're seeing more close loss, no decision versus close loss you know, to a competitor. So can you take those signals kind of real time from January and February and kind of see how those leading indicators are going to recast your Q2 through Q4 plan? Is that kind of one of the things you're recommending? Absolutely. So you you already are skating to where the puck is on these four pillars. So I mentioned the first one is being hyper-realistic on your go-to-market drivers. The fourth one is leading indicators and obsessing over them. So let me walk backwards just to say sequential here. So the second one is being hyper-responsible on cost. And you see that everywhere, hence the layoffs, right? I mean, the, the reality is that I'm not suggesting anyone, any CFOs out there, sort of follow the herd on layoffs. And in fact, Planful did not do layoffs and, and we're growing our team this year. But the key here is responsible and the two words, profitable growth, right? Profitable growth. And if we're honest with ourselves, Ray, profitable growth should always be in style. But when money... It has been essentially free for 15 years. I think what's in fashion, what's in style changes pretty quickly. And, you know, capital has to go find the, the growth, risky growth. I want to ask you a question real quick. Sorry to interrupt again, but profitable growth. Are you using EBITDA as your guiding light or are you looking at net income? So God bless net income. It's not hyper relevant to what I do, right? Our top line metric that, you know, drives valuation is more likely to be annual recurring revenue or ARR when you're a SaaS business. Not that I ignore net income and certain stakeholders, you know, they really link to that gap metric. But really, when I talk about bottom line, certainly EBITDA, but clean EBITDA. No funky ad backs for restructuring or a new lower cost contract that we assume will flow in. But then I also look at free cash flow, both levered and unlevered, because that's where you can't hide anything. Really, how much are you keeping in cash flow from that top line. And so I look at those three measures of profitability. EBITDA, certainly, they give a good sense of the operating of the business, and then free cash flow, make sure there's nothing funky going on in working capital, both levered and unlevered, um, in case you're using debt. 
Okay, so sorry to interrupt again, but let's go back to those four pillars. We got your first one all the way through. <laughs> what are the next three? I, I need to keep it tighter. So the first one was being hyper-realistic about your top line drivers. Second one was being hyper-responsible on costs. And then the third one is running scenarios. So that will not be surprising that the CFO of a planning company that enables scenario planning would suggest that that's one of the four pillars. But the reason that that's more important than ever is the uncertainty. So if you have very minimal confidence that you know a number you can lock in and hit with, say, 90% certainty because of all the crazy mixed signals in the market, then the way to mitigate that is to run scenarios, mainly on the downside, but also on the upside. I mean, gosh, we'd love to be surprised and suddenly knock out the first half of the year and be asking ourselves, where do we lean in? And, And being ready for that and understanding where the opportunity is and getting ahead of it so that it can matter for your year is important. But the downside scenarios are, are the real insurance or safety blanket. And what that means is, you know, be prepared for a, a 20, 15% miss in Q1, Q2. And what would you do to ensure the health of the business in those different scenarios so that your team isn't panicking and scrambling to operationally adjust? How has your relationship with your CRO head of sales changed this year to really make sure you're on top of those leading indicators regarding deal velocity, et cetera, so you can keep doing some what-ifs, you know, planning scenarios for downstream? Well, my relationship, I don't think with my CSO, Pierre, and my leader of solution consulting, Steve Welsh, I don't think it's, it's changed. And, and I'm lucky because they're very metrics-driven people. And, and if they weren't, I think it would change as I'd be knocking on their door more or knocking on their, their Zoom, however you want to say it, and trying to pull more information from them. But we have very well-instrumented tech stack that feeds all three of us the same data from a single source of truth, predominantly our CRM, in terms of the top-line indicators. And we review that information together. Great dashboards, whether they're distributed weekly or whether they're self-service, and it starts the conversation. And and I can get into, you probably could bore uh, the heck out of your audience getting into you know, the 80 or so metrics that the three of us nerd out on all the time, actually. Invite me to that party. That would be like my dream, Dan. But, you know, we were doing some benchmarking research about six months ago on forecast accuracy in the B2B SaaS space. And this was for new business, for existing customer expansion, and for retention. And on new business, we found almost 70% of B2B SaaS companies were missing their forecast by plus or minus 10% or greater, 70%. And only 10%, which is really best of class, were within a one to five plus or minus error margin. Do you have any secrets or best practices on how to improve the accuracy of forecasting, Dan, especially in today's environment? Let me ask you a question. What do you believe the acceptable margin of error is or variance to forecast is for a SaaS business on on news. So you mentioned 70% of businesses are greater than 10% inaccurate, right? Is that what I heard from you, Ray? Let me say, so 90% of companies had a greater than 10% error margin. Sure, on new business, got it. And so that is a big group and it suggests that it's difficult to do this. And I'm wondering what you think. I mean, to me, for example, a 5% variance to forecast seems pretty good, like probably nearly best in class. In fact, you know, I grew up in GE, so I was trained to financial modeling and financial forecasts was cost of job retention. It really was. So 
I believe that 5%, you know, 5% or lower, plus or minus, you have to be. In fact, every time I was a CRO, my CFO was like, how in the hell do you get so close? I've never seen a VP of sales or CRO be so accurate. And I use something called a triangulation model, right? That bottoms up, right? Everybody, right? From the AEs actually had to give a commit number that I kind of signed in blood. And I actually paid them more if they hit their forecasts. I had to, you know, top down from the VPs of sales, et cetera. And then, of course, I had very rigorous stage-based gates that I could do a weighted average based upon stages, right? So I brought those three together. But I don't see many companies putting that type of rigor or even taking advantage of some of today's kind of automated, signal-based, AI-based forecasting technology, Dan. And I'm not sure why. I, I love what you're saying there. And so let me unpack that because you, you dropped multiple nuggets there. So first and foremost, you mentioned using sales incentive compensation to influence tighter performance to forecast. And, and I absolutely agree that you start there when you design the comp plans and you definitely need to incentivize everybody behind the idea that you have a budget, you have a plan, and you're trying to hit that. And same goes for forecast. So 100% agree with you on that one. I think the second thing, and then I'll get into the question that you originally asked, which is what tips would I give to tighten up forecast accuracy? I think the second question is different parts of your business, second point, different parts of your business will be easier to forecast than others. I can tell you that my team strives for 5 to 3% variance to forecast on, for example, our North American business. Our North American business is super high performing. It's a machine. We've got years of data. We're very tightened up on our processes and our leadership. Our team is mature. When we have a greater than 5% variance to forecast, something is going on in the market. It's really not down to the team and the forecasting processes. But we have international business. We have channel business. We have new products that we launch. And those things are in their nature. They have a more uh, short track record. There's less data on which to rely and less mature teams, et cetera. And so those things, I loosen it up a bit. And I'm not going to freak out if we have a greater than 5% variance, what we'll do is we'll examine it, we'll learn from it, and we'll get better. We'll train our own model, so to speak, if that hangs together for you. Let me, let me pause there, and then, then I'll finally answer your original question on tips. So you, you asked, what tips could I give to CFOs to be better than the data that you threw out there, which is 90% of companies are greater than 10% inaccurate. And, and for me, it probably boils down to you use the word triangulation, right? So it probably boils down to triangulation. I'll give you three examples. And then having a robust cadence and interlock where on a weekly basis, you're reforecasting the business. I want to say that again. Weekly is the cadence you need if you want to be hyper accurate, in my opinion. Not daily, not monthly, but weekly. And so to me, triangulation, and what that means is it's like the old SNOP. You have a cadence where maybe by the end of the week, you're starting to process the latest and greatest data, and then you're updating your models, and then you all get on the, the Zoom meeting or in a room together on Monday, and you do your interlock, and then you package that up and present it to your CFO or your executive team, whatever your stakeholder group is. So the three triangulations that I would suggest for a SaaS forecast, the first one you already mentioned, that would be the sales manager forecast. This is going to be rep-based, deal by deal, an open pipeline, what's the commit they're giving, and certainly also not just open pipeline, but add some information in there on fast moving pipeline or pipeline that's not yet in the window. At Planful, our sales cycle is less than 90 days, which means certain portion of our deals 
the beginning of the quarter are simply not visible to us. They don't exist yet in our pipeline. So I would say triangulation method number one, the sales managers. And oftentimes those guys and girls are going to be the most accurate. They are in the trenches with their sales team. They know exactly what's going on deal by deal. They understand the buyer just a little bit better than finance. He's not talking to the buyer three times a day or whatever it is. So that's number one. Finance is number two. And finance can use several different methods. One of my favorites in a SaaS business is pipeline production and conversion. It's simple. How much pipeline do we have open? What do we think it'll convert at and when? And also what pipeline will we generate and what will that convert at and when? I say it's simple. The models are relatively intricate and we do ours in Planful, which should be no surprise. But of course, there's a tight interlock there between your CRM and your forecasting tool. Then there are other forecasting tools out there like Exactly and Clary that also do a little bit of that same thing, but not in a planning tool where it combines with the rest of your financials to provide that financial forecast, just a, a top line forecast. And then in our business, our third triangulation is what you just said. This is using AI. We have a tool in Planful called Planful Predict that's probably similar to those other tools I just mentioned, but I will not give them more free advertisement in that it's using a combination of the two. It's looking at your headcount and their quotas and projecting their attainment based on their own open pipeline and also adding some AI-driven pipeline production and, and conversion assumptions. And so then you've got the machine in the loop as well, which is helpful as a sanity check. So you take the sales signal, the finance signal, and the, the automated signal, and what you're looking for there is some outlier. And what is that telling you? And that's what you investigate. If all three of them are in rampant agreement, you start to almost blink and, and you're surprised, right? But if the machine is, is more aggressive, you have to start asking yourself, are we in a stronger buying cycle where our, our drivers that we're using, which are lagging indicators, maybe a rolling average or some such like that, right? Maybe we need to start adjusting those for market intel that the machine has that we don't, for example. Interesting. Well, I love the fact that we're fairly aligned. Maybe I could be a CFO someday if I keep learning from people like you. I think you should throw your hat in the ring. So you mentioned 80 metrics. And even though I'd like to spend a day with you talking about those, our audience probably is not going to spend that time with us. So are there three to five kind of SaaS performance metrics, right? Not your standard, you know, finance, gross margin, et cetera, but SaaS performance metrics that all the investors love that you're like, this is what I'm managing and measuring for my board. And it really gives me good perspective on how we're doing it as an organization from revenue growth efficiency. I got a good one for you. ARR growth. <laughs> I kid. I kid. Lately, it's it. 2023. I thought we didn't. Growth wasn't as important, though. I do believe it's still the number two from an enterprise value to the next 12 months multiple factor. So totally agreed. I was just being difficult, Ray. Obviously, that's one of the North Stars. So I think I'll put them in two buckets. There's lagging indicators that help you understand the efficiency of your business, like LTV to CAC, CAC payback period, all that good stuff. But let's let's put that in the box. It's a little less exciting for most of your audience, I think, and go to the leading indicators. You and I have talked about leading indicators here without getting too in the weeds. And, and I think the two groups of leading indicators that most excite me, which might be surprising as a CFO because they have nothing to do with the traditional finance dashboard, but they live in marketing and sales. And so in marketing, so let's just specifically look at outbound SDR pipeline generation. So what is an SDR? Most of your audience knows it's a sales development rep or a business development rep. These are usually high energy, highly persuasive, talented conversationalists who are cold calling. They are calling, they're using automated dialers 
And when someone picks up the phone, for example, for Planful, they may say, how are you today? You know, how are you doing? But then they might say, how do you do your planning, budgeting, forecasting, reporting? And if that person says, well, we do it in, in spreadsheets, you know, we might both at that point agree that's not ideal for a long-term game plan. And then that could lead to a conversation about Planful, right? And so to me, I like to peel back the leading indicators of that group. So connect rate. Per the auto dialer, how many times does someone actually answer the phone? And then after connect rate, it's conversation rate. Per answer of the phone, how many of the folks on the other end will stay on the phone for, say, you can set it, but maybe 30 seconds plus? That's a conversation. Could be a really bad conversation. Could be a butt dial, but at the end of the day, it counts as a conversation. And then the next one would be opportunity rate. So per conversation, how many of those result in that SDR, BDR registering a marketing you know, qualified opportunity in the pipeline, in your CRM? And finally, what is the sales team acceptance rate on those? And so are they real? Are they quality? You know, was it just the two of them talking about the Chicago Cubs? Or was there actually something there? A buyer interested in learning more, potential buyer interested in learning more about Planful. So those four things are, if you're using the right tools, all readily discoverable. And in fact, I have them served to me on a weekly basis. And what I'm looking for there is trends. And if you see, for example, connect rate eroding, people just aren't picking up, that's one thing. But if you see conversation rate eroding, then you know people, they may pick up because they're polite or they're expecting a call from their doctor or something like that. And yet the moment they find out it's a software vendor, they say, I can't do anything this year. We just did layoffs. Bye. Right. And so that would be a concern to me. So those are the marketing leading indicators. And on sales, it would be things like monthly linearity, win rates. Win rates, of course, are huge. And then you could get really wonky. And this, I think, is the next frontier for finance. And a lot of us use natural language processing tools in our sales process. They record the call. They're looking for keywords. And if you start to to see more frequency bubble up in words like budget cuts or phrases like budget cuts and words like recession or paranoid, you know, maybe you'd start to think, hey, we clearly have something on the brain of our buyer market and it's not good. And we need to be aware of that. Wait a minute, Daniel. You're telling me that as a CFO, you'll take those recordings from a conversational intelligence and you'll look at some of the trends and findings that are coming out in the CI tool? No. So just to be clear, everything but the natural language processing is something I do on a routine basis. I'm merely suggesting the next frontier would be us finding a way to dashboard, to put data behind the, the natural language processing. So the short answer is no, but my company does use those tools. And I, it's something I'm interested in exploring this year, right? I, was, I had to meet Bendolf, who's the founder and CEO of Gong on the podcast a few months ago. And we were talking about the expanding role of conversational intelligence, not just in you know, capturing what the SDR AEs are saying, but also the customer success teams, the customer service teams. Product has started to use those to get feedback on product. And no one ever talked about the finance team really hearing what's going on with buyer sentiment and buyer hesitation. But I love that. That's very forward thinking. You can see just using a simple metric like keyword frequency, how finance could absolutely use that to inform forecasting and resource allocation. So I'm going to try to connect something that's going to get to financial operations. But a lot of SaaS companies haven't instrumented a lot of those leading indicators to get in front of decision makers quickly enough. 
So even like, you know, the connect to conversation rate, conversation to meeting, conversation opportunity, you know, it's like, okay, I get it and from Salesforce, I put it in Excel, I massage it, and three weeks after the month ends, I have it, right? It's hard to make decisions that impact the next month. Same with financing I and finance. I find a lot of times in the research we've done, it takes 5, 10, 15 days to get some of those financial performance metrics like CAC ratio, which I'm a big fan of, or net dollar retention. And you don't have it quick enough to make a decision for the next month or the next quarter. So how do you recommend to SaaS companies that you got to get real-time continuous feedback on those performance metrics you care about so you can make decisions mid-accounting period, not three weeks after the period closed? Is that question clear? I don't know if this is intentional, but you're giving me a softball. My answer would be, audience, reach out to me about Planful. <laughs> so all jokes aside, this is what we do. And at risk of sounding salesy, there are other solutions out there that do this. But really, there's no way other than technology to really turn the, the speed up on delivering key metrics. Humans can only do so much. Even an army of humans can only do so much in, in manual efforts. And so and manual meaning dump the TV out into Excel or Google Sheets and wrangle it and, and you know make adjustments. And so I really think it's what we're talking about is two areas. You need to be very buttoned up on your CRM and make sure that you're getting the right metrics out of your CRM, whether it's Salesforce or HubSpot or, or whatever. And then on your budgeting forecast and reporting tool, you have to be absolutely automated there because the thing, it's, it's ironic, right? Because although we control costs, costs are the thing that takes longer in the month end close to actually get buttoned up. I mean, we know what our bookings are on day one, right? There might be some straggler commercial contracts out there, but once you have those bookings in a tool like Planfor, your ARR waterfall just populates and things like gross uh, dollar retention, net dollar retention, ATR retention, they just populate if you have your reporting templates set up right. But for close, I mean, you have things like accruals that need to be booked. You, you know what a month and close checklist is. Things are super long. And so, you know, you need to have a tool that automatically integrates with your ERP to process things like financial consolidation, FX conversion, uh, allocations, and uh, cap software, all that good stuff. And there are a number of tools out there, including Planful, that help the team really speed up on that stuff. And by the way, be more accurate. So this is not news to anyone in your audience, but technology will help you be faster. We did some research with Sage Intech, one of the leading financial management platforms, like GL, et cetera. And we looked at companies under 20 million. And of course, they had like 74% were primarily using Excel for a lot of these metrics calculations, even RevRec, right? Which is pretty crazy. So my question to you is, at what stage of evolution should a SaaS company start looking at automating more of these financial operational chores? Is it 5 million? Is it 20 million? I know it's kind of a vague question, but do you have any advice there, Dan? It is vague, and I appreciate you acknowledging that because it's all about complexity. And, and revenue and employee count are good proxies for complexity, but not entirely. You, you know, if you're a product led growth company or a usage billing based company, your uh, complexity and unpredictability is significantly harder to deal with than if you're just a classic sales-led SaaS business. If you're a classic sales-led SaaS business, you know, I, I don't like to say this as, as a vendor in, in software, but you could probably get away with being 15, 20 million 
And if you're very good in spreadsheets with some very talented people, still deliver quick and accurate KPIs, financial reporting, forecasts, all of that. Above that, you're, you're kind of kidding yourself. You know, brute force is the name of the game. It, it will result in high employee churn. It will result in errors. It will result in slow time to delivery and all of that. And I've lived, I've lived that world. And so I, I know that for sure. But of course, if you're below that level and you've got business complexity, international operations, you know, you're a product company, whatever, you may need to accelerate that timeline. You mentioned usage-based billing. So I'm going to bring something we talked about early on, forecasting and this evolving trend of consumption-based or usage-based billing. Do your clients have the ability to use product usage analytics information to help feed the forecasting capability? Yes. I mean, you can, you know, a tool like Planful is, we call it uh, integration agnostic. You know, the three most common integrations are CRM, HRIS, and ERP. And you're getting different things from each of those. Obviously, the HRS is more headcount-based. CRM is going to be top-line and funnel-based. And ERP is going to be your actuals, your actuals on, on cost and revenue, of course. But we find our customers doing all kinds of creative integrations out there with companies like Gainsight for more usage-based information with the back end of their own systems and databases for things like actual billing usage. You know, what's the rate? What's the meter rate? And so, yes, the short answer is you can do it all. Some of that stuff takes more legwork to build out the structure in our dynamic planning module versus using the templates in the structured planning, but any of those is possible. And, and by the way, I'd love to chat with, if you know any customers who are doing that, I'd love to just sit and listen to them talk about it because I bet that modeling, that solution is, is for a finance person quite beautiful. It's a complex issue and I haven't found a good solution out there. So, you know, our 30 minutes are coming to an end, and I wish we could talk for at least another 30, but I have one last question. I put on an event last week, and SaaS spend management was one of the topics, and we had five of the top SaaS spend management companies, you know, the vendors, the Tropics, the Cladaras. But here you are, CFO of a good mid-sized B2B SaaS company. How do you view the SaaS spend sprawl, and how do you manage it as a CFO in your size company? It doesn't surprise me. I, I take a contrarian's point of view to this. The reason SaaS is proliferating is because it's useful. It's, it's not because the SaaS vendors are putting it out there. It's because buyers like it. Buyers recognize the ROI. They recognize the need to automate, to free humans up, to do the strategic work. And so I don't necessarily think SaaS proliferation is a bad thing. And I promise you, Ray, neither do those spend management vendors. They, they need and want proliferation to help their customers manage it. That said, I acknowledge it is easy to have employee turnover and to forget about recurring contracts with auto renewal or to evolve away from using certain tools as frequently as you once did and to have unused seats or whatever the pricing model is. And so I think as long as you have a way, whether it's the SaaS spend management providers, the spend flows, the vendors, et cetera, or whether it's using you know, a tool like Planful, we, we and most of our customers forecast at the vendor level and do vendor actuals and just using that to stay hygienic about it. Wh whichever way, it's all about understanding is the ROI that you use to buy that software, does it still hold up? And so I'm not saying you need to constantly calculate ROI, but you should talk to the, the, the budget that that tool is hitting and make sure that the purchasing manager agrees that that's a good use of their budget. You know, are you still using Planful? Absolutely. We want more of Planful. Good. All right, we'll leave that alone. <laughs>
as a CFO, because we have a lot of first-time CFOs in our listening audience, did you take a more detailed look at your own SaaS spend this year? And did you push back on the department heads to say, really look at some of these variable spends? I wouldn't say more than usual. I mean, we are a budgeting company, so you can rest assured that our budget process is extremely in the weeds, buttoned up. I mean, we better be if we're telling people to use our own tool to do it. So I wouldn't say that accelerated this year. I think for us, it was really a question of running ROI analysis on the opportunities. So I mentioned we didn't do layoffs and, and we also didn't do a lot of terminations of our SaaS stack. But what we did do is look at the areas of investment that we were going to plow capital to into this year. And we were very judicious. Take a look at investment that's got a higher certainty, maybe lower overall opportunity. Maybe it's not likely to be a 10x ROI, but it's a 3x ROI. And we can be quite certain of that within a good margin of error. It was the year to take the, the path of more certainty, higher certainty when we're surrounded by uncertainty. Okay. Final question. It's what I didn't ask you. You got a hundred first-time CFOs. Maybe they have 12 to 24 months of experience and it was in 2021 and the first half of 2022 when times were pretty good. What advice would you give them based upon everything that you've seen and experienced? It's like, this is something you guys really need to think about. What is it, Dan? I, I, this is advice I give myself every day and I don't always succeed at it. And, and I've been reminded of it more and more lately in the craziness of the budget cycle. But really in, in finance and in, in most teams, it, it comes down to your people. You know, you can have all the great tech in the world, but you need people in that business to make the smart decisions and to operate the tech. And I think as CFOs, the uh, need to be pulled in different directions by your other executives, by investors, by your board, by your CEO, can at times mean that your team on the finance, the legal, the accounting side gets the short shrift in terms of your time, your attention, and that's not good. And really they should be first in line. And so, you know, I am myself and just had a conversation with my controller about it today, rededicating myself to quality time with my team in a cycle where the temptation can be to spend your time being paranoid about other things like leading indicators. I love it. People first. Okay. Three quick questions for the listening audience to get to know you a little bit better. Is there a CEO or company that you think they must follow for those CFOs out there? It's like you can really learn from this person or this company. Well, you know, Frank Slootman wrote a, a great book called Amp It Up about you know his entire career service now, but also Snowflake. And I, that book resonated with me. And, and so I'll, I'll throw that one out there because you can actually do something about it. You can go read the book. I, I thought it. He's tough, but he's fair, and he's clearly brilliant, and he's experienced. And so I thought that was a good one. Now, Frank Slootman, that's a good one. And his book is wonderful. Second question. What tool, not your own, should every company be considering to use? And it doesn't need to be a name. It could be a category, but a tool. Not planful. Oh, that's, that's tough. So I'll give you a gem. There's a company called Gapify out there, and the founder, uh, Jotham, will thank me for this. And what they do is they automate uh, month-end accruals, vendor accruals. And to me, you know, that is not the sexiest thing in the world. But my gosh, we spent, before we bought this tool, about three human days, not consecutively, but three days in a, a seven, eight-day close doing the vendor confirmation and, and accrual process. And so to have that wave a wand and have all that happen behind the scenes in the tech has been a real relief. Okay, Gapify for vendor accruals, love it. Last question. We have a lot of early career people out there. 
a lot of people losing their first finance job, right? Because Ben Murray, the SaaS CFO, and I do a lot of work together. So a lot of people want to be a SaaS CFO. What advice do you give that early career, just starting to be a finance person in the SaaS industry who wants to be Dan Fletcher in 10, 20 years? What advice do you give them right now? I think learn the business. Whatever your role is at your business, the only way and the quickest way to be pulled into critical conversations and accelerate your career is to know as much about that business, about that market as anyone. It's it's what will open doors for you. And so what I mean by that is do a full diligence on your own company, almost like you were going to invest in it. Understand the drivers of it, understand the history of it, understand the competition, understand the trajectory, the strategic priorities. And you'll find just in meetings, people will start looking to you and, and you'll answer a few questions, in a meeting with a bunch of VPs. And next thing you know, you'll be put on a key project about a new initiative and off you go. That's really good advice. It's funny. I was had a first time CFO in the podcast a few weeks ago. His name's CJ Gustafson. And he's got his first CFO job about six months ago. And he said, that's exactly what he did. He became like almost indispensable. The CEO said, hey, you really seem to understand what we're doing here. Can you go look at this project for me? And it became like a go-to for the CEO when he was just an analyst. It was amazing. Makes total sense. And I love that proof point. Dan, thank you so much for being a guest here on the Metrics of Measure Up. I really appreciate it. Ray, it was a pleasure. And I like the podcast and, and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. And to our listening audience, if you're finding value from guests like Dan Fletcher, the CFO of Planful, and the content that we're discussing, it mean the world to us. Go ahead and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Go ahead and give us a five-star rating, especially if you're listening to this episode. And go ahead and give us a recommendation review so it can amplify our information out to more people like you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpsquared.com.